The History Channel original podcast. Just a quick note before we start our episode, we want to let you know that today's story covers topics including murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. History this week, March 20th, 1953. I'm Sally Helm. A dingy London cul-de-sac sits in the shadow of an old iron foundry. The last row house on the block is number 10. It's cramped and narrow, and it needs a coat of fresh paint. The foundation is sinking, so the doors and the windows look slightly tilted in places. It gives you the sense that the whole house might fall over if you just jabbed it really hard with your elbow. In a living room just on the other side of the first floor bay window, the tenant, a middle-aged man named John Christie, is arranging things with his new subletters. There's the bedroom, here's the key. He's not technically supposed to be subletting at all, but he's anxious to get out of town and he needs the money. He borrows a brown suitcase from one of the new tenants, packs his clothes, and walks out the front door. Almost immediately, Christie's landlord discovers the illegal subletters. He's not happy. He kicks them out of the apartment. But he can't find Christie anywhere. He lets another tenant in the building use Christie's kitchen. And a few days later, on March 24th, that guy decides he wants to put a radio up on the wall. He knocks on the wall looking for a solid place to attach a bracket. But unexpectedly, he hears a hollow sound. He gets a flashlight, pokes a hole through the flimsy wallpaper, and finds a body. (gasps) The man will soon discover that there are in fact not just one, but three bodies stuffed into this hidden alcove. And the body count doesn't end there. Today, the case of serial killer John Christie. Why, decades later, are parts of his story still a mystery? And how did that very mystery play into a big change in the UK? The abolition of the death penalty. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the summer of 1943, there are not yet any bodies in the walls of 10 Rillington Place. But living on the first floor with his wife Ethel and his dog Judy is a 44-year-old John Reginald Christie. John Christie, to me, is the creepiest of creepy. Professor Kate Winkler Dawson wrote about Christie's crimes in her book, Death in the Air. She says accounts of this guy, even before he was a known killer, they are not flattering. He was not charming. He was not handsome. He sort of had a large forehead. He wears glasses, and he has a very awkward smile. And gosh, he's just not described very well. 
growing up, he'd never quite fit in. He spent his childhood in a manufacturing town in the north of England, one of seven siblings. He didn't have a lot of friends. When all his peers started dating, he struggled. They called him Can't Do It Christie, which is a terrible nickname, along with some other nicknames that I'm not going to repeat on the History Channel. And this all added up to an incredibly insecure, sort of miserable man. He heads off to the army almost as soon as he turns 18, maybe to get away from the misery. He fights in World War I and gets hit with mustard gas. He blames the attack for hurting his voice. He could not really speak any louder than a whisper, which added to the creepiness, as you can imagine. All along, though, Christie does have one trait that consistently works in his favor. I will say the best thing about him is that he was bright. He reads a lot growing up, doesn't like fiction, prefers technical stuff about medicine and electricity. And after the First World War, Christie does end up meeting a woman who agrees to marry him. Her name is Ethel. Right before the Second World War, in 1937, the middle-aged couple moves in to 10 Rillington Place. Their home stood on a small street in the Notting Hill area of London. If any of your listeners have been to Notting Hill, it's wonderful. It's one of my favorite areas of London. Not in the 1940s. It was a terrible place in the 1940s. It was run down. It was filled with people who were pretty miserable, underemployed or unemployed. There was a lot of part-time sex work. So this was not a really great place for them to live. By 1943, the year our story begins, the neighborhood had already been ravaged by World War II. You'd see bombed out buildings as you walk down the street. Christie, at this time, is a war reserve policeman going out on patrol. And he is not exactly the most moral of people. He may well have been, well, he certainly was. He, he was unfaithful to his wife because he was having an affair with a female police officer where he worked. Jonathan Oates is a historian and archivist. He spent years sifting through public records and researching Christie for his book, John Christie at 10 Rillington Place. Oates told us, at some point in 1942 or 43, John Christie's path intersects with that of another woman, a Jewish refugee from Austria named Ruth Fewerst. He says he met her in a snack bar And he says that she told him that she was rather short of money. So he said that he would help her out. Christie claims they struck up a friendship and had long talks while he was on patrol. It's likely they began an affair. He invites her to his house several times that spring and summer when Ethel is gone. And then... On the last occasion, which was in August 1943, Christie killed her. Christie never fully explains why he committed this first murder. One possibility, one story, is that when Christie and Ruth were in the house together, someone knocked on the door and it was a messenger with with news for Christie that his wife and his wife's brother, Henry, had just arrived in London and they were on their way to the house. Christie obviously did not want his wife and her brother finding him with a young woman partially dressed in their house, so he panicked and strangled her. He always maintains that it wasn't planned, but he admits to feeling something strange when he looked down and saw what he had done. He said she looked more beautiful in death than she did in life. Now, John Reginald Christie has a dead body on his hands. 
the first body he'll hide at 10 Rillington Place. Here's Professor Dawson again. He took her body and he buried her in the garden and he buried her deeply enough so that he, which this is terrible, he would plant things above her. So there were all kinds of flowers planted above her. He continued to garden. Several months go by. The flowers in Christie's garden grow, they die, they grow again. It's now 1944. Christie has started working at a radio production factory and he meets Muriel Eady. The two become friendly. Edie and her boyfriend go on double dates with the Christies. Then in October, Edie comes down with bronchitis. And, ever conscientious, Christie offers to help. Remember all that technical reading he was doing? John Christie said, I have a first aid certificate, which sounds like something pretty silly, but, you know, he knew a little bit more than the average person about medicine. He said, I can treat you for that cough. Come back to my house. Ethel's out of town, so Christy and Edie are alone. He brings her to the kitchen, has her sit down, and he pulls out a jar containing a solution called Friar's Balsam. And it had kind of a, like a minty, menthol, rub on your chest when you were a kid kind of smell to it. She breathes in the fumes through a tube to clear out her chest. Which in theory could work. The issue is that he had connected another tube to the back of his furnace, which was a tap for coal gas. So when he would release that gas, it released carbon monoxide and knocked her out. After that, John Christie sexually assaults her, then strangles her with a cord. Just as he did with Ruth Fewerst, he buries Edie in the garden. Oates told us that she is reported missing, but... Her family thought that she, she was probably killed in an air raid because this is up during World War II. So once again, Christie has got away with murder. Five years go by. And then in the spring of 1948, some new tenants move into the top floor. A young married couple in their 20s named Beryl and Timothy Evans. When their lives intersect with Christie's, things get complicated. In fact deadly. The mystery of what happens between these three people will persist up to the present day. The husband, Timothy Evans, is from Wales. He is a van driver by profession. He's not very intelligent. He he can't read and write very much. But in, in order to compensate for this, he tells stories about himself and about his family to make him sound grander and more important than he actually is. The wife, Beryl Evans, is five years younger than Timothy. She's described as educated, argumentative, and enigmatic. She's also a few months pregnant with their first child when the couple moves into 10 Rillington Place. And it's there in October 1948 that baby Geraldine Evans is born. Beryl Evans and her husband are on friendly terms with the Christies downstairs. They occasionally share a neighborly cup of tea. The young couple's relationship, meanwhile, is not going well. For several reasons. Partly, or perhaps mainly, because Evans is drinking away in pubs a lot of his wages. He's also wasting money on gambling, on dogs and horses. And so not much money is coming into the house. They're behind on rent. Timothy is having affairs with other women. And worse... (laughs) 
Timothy was also a wife beater as well, especially after he came back from the pub. Tension in the household builds. And soon, the couple gets some news. Unwelcome news, in their case. Beryl announced that she was pregnant with, obviously, a second child. And that added to the tension that was already very high. And the evidence we have is that she may well have tried to find some method of aborting the baby, um, unsuccessfully. And then, on November 7th, 1949, according to Timothy, he and Beryl have a big blowout argument. On November 8th, some workmen fixing the roof see a woman and child going out at around 10 a.m., almost certainly Beryl and Geraldine. And then the Evans's downstairs neighbor, John Christie, says he saw Beryl going out again later that day. And if he is correct, that is the last time anyone saw Beryl Evans alive, except, of course, her murderer. People won't know for a few weeks that Beryl and Geraldine are missing. But we know now that November 8th is an important day. As Oates said, the last day they're ever seen. And two days later, Beryl's husband starts acting strange. Timothy Evans is at work, and he manages, after an argument, to lose his job. The next day, November 11th... He sells all his furniture from his rooms. On the 14th of November, Timothy Evans leaves the house and he takes a railway train to where his aunt and uncle live in Wales. Evans is traveling alone. He tells various stories about his wife and daughter. To his aunt and uncle, he says they're vacationing in a seaside town. Then, a week or so later, he says that Beryl has left him. Those are his explanations, which are, as we will discover, are not correct. On the 29th of November, Evans's mother writes a letter to the aunt and uncle that he's staying with. His mother is very angry because she says that her son has left without telling people where he's gone to. His aunt and uncle are asking him what's going on, and he doesn't really know what to do. That afternoon, Evans shows up of his own accord at a nearby police station. And he says to a police officer there, I want to report something. And the police say, what do you want to report? And then he announces that he has put his wife down a drain. They bring him in for questioning, and he tells them a story. He says an unnamed man gave him pills that would abort Beryl's pregnancy. She took them, and they killed her. But the police are a bit suspicious of his story. The story comes out very slowly, and one of the detectives thinks it's a cock and bull story. Nevertheless, it is a potential murder, so the police get word to local officers in Notting Hill. They show up outside Ten Millington Place with crowbars and find the sewer drain. After a lot of effort from three or four different men, they pry open the sewer and drop down, and there's nothing down there. So what is this guy saying? There's nothing down there, and there's no way he would have done it by himself. He could not have gotten that lit up by himself. The Notting Hill police send the news back. No body. 
when the Welsh police confront Evans with this... He comes out with another long story. Call it confession number two. This time, it's very different. He says, well, my first story was correct. I just told it in order to help a man called Christy. A man called Christy. The police have no idea that Christy has two bodies buried in the backyard. It's likely that Evans doesn't know this either. And yet, in his second confession, he points the finger right at his neighbor. He says, John Christie performed an abortion on my wife. I was at work. And when I got home... Christie tells him, I've got some very bad news for you. It didn't work. And then Evans runs upstairs and discovers the dead body of his wife. Christie explains that the abortion went wrong, but if you tell anybody about it, then you will be blamed and you could be looking at a charge of murder. Evan says that he and Christy took care of the body together. He says Christy promised to find a new home for the baby, Geraldine. The Welsh police hold Evans in custody and send back this new story to Notting Hill. The police go to 10 Rillington Place again. They look in Evans's apartment and they talk to the Christies. John Christie denies being an abortionist and, of course, does not mention his history of playing doctor to lure victims to 10 Rillington Place. Fortunately for Christie, when the police search the premises for Beryl's body, they aren't totally attentive. When they pass through the backyard gate... What they don't see, inexplicably, they don't see a weird stick that's propping up part of the gate. That stick is actually a femur bone from one of Christie's first two victims. They walked right by a femur bone, didn't notice it. The police do check to see if there are signs of recent digging in the garden. There aren't. So Christie's secret remains safe. And a few days later, the police find Beryl's body in the outhouse. She's been strangled. Sadly, so was baby Geraldine. Her body is found not far from her mother's. So this is now a murder investigation, and Chief Inspector Jennings tells Evans that he is charging him with the death of his wife and child. Do you have anything to say? It's here that Evans makes his third and final confession. Now, the longer statement is important because he makes it very quickly. Unlike his first two, which Oates says were slow, in confession number three... Evans's story is this. He killed his wife, Beryl. They were arguing, and he strangled her with a rope. Later, he admits to a police officer that he killed Geraldine, too. He says he did it because she wouldn't stop crying. Evans is ultimately charged with the murder of Geraldine. In the UK at the time, murder suspects were only tried for one murder, even if they were accused of committing multiple crimes. Facing a trial and the death penalty, Evans recants his confession. He tells his mom, I know I made all those statements, Mom, but only one of them is true. The one in which I said Christy had done it. But at the trial, Christy is the prosecution's star witness against Evans. He takes the stand and points the finger right back at his neighbor. And who's the jury to believe? John Christy, respectable veteran, 
or Timothy Evans, a drunk, unemployed man who lies and who abused his wife. No one can think of a reason why Christie would randomly kill Evans's wife and child. Even Evans can't. When the prosecution asks him what Christie's motive would have been, Evans says, well, he was at home at the time. And the prosecution counsel says, yes, but why should he kill them? Why? What's the motive? And and Evans has no answer to this. He he cannot think of anything. After a short 40 minutes of deliberation, Evans is found guilty and sentenced to death. Few people, besides the family, pay any attention to Evans's trial or his execution. This would have been just sort of your humdrum, normal domestic violence that we saw all the time in the 50s in London. Wrapped up in a newspaper, it was a blip. Life proceeds as normal at 10 Rillington Place. Until December of 1952, when an unusually heavy and suffocating smog wafts over London. It can't have helped with the already irritable mood inside the Christie home. The city is shutting down. People are stuck inside. And right then, Christie decides to quit his job. So now he and Ethel are stuck at home together in this bizarre weather. And as my, a friend of mine once said, sort of tongue-in-cheek, she said, there's no worse news to a serial killer than being stuck in your house with your wife for five or six days straight. And when the fog ends, everything lifts and everything calms down. And then a few days later, he looks at Ethel and decides that it's time to kill her. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Christy strangles his wife, Ethel, and hides her body in the living room beneath some loose floorboards. And then he sleeps by the floorboards to be close to her. It is so beyond bizarre what he does. Not long after the murder, a burglar steals some cookies from a nearby bakery. He runs into 10 Rillington Place, of all the houses, to hide from the police. But he's caught, and a police officer, a man named Len Trevelyan, comes back to apologize to Christy for the disturbance. Christy thanks him. Trevelyan goes to leave. But then he pauses. And he looks around, and he says to Christy, what's that smell? And Christy says, ugh, the neighbors, they cook all of this disgusting food. 
And Lynn Trevelyan says, okay, and leaves. Despite this close call, Christy seemingly feels free to do whatever he'd like. In the next few months, in quick succession, he commits three more murders at 10 Rillington Place. As with his first crimes, few notice the disappearances. Kathleen Maloney, who he met at a bar. Rita Nelson, who was six months pregnant at the time of her death. And lastly, Hectorina McLennan, who had come over to 10 Rillington Place with her boyfriend to discuss subletting Christie's room. Each time, Christie's M.O. is the same. He uses gas to knock the women out. He sexually assaults and then strangles them. And he puts the bodies of these three women in a little alcove behind a kitchen cupboard. Meanwhile, Ethel's family hasn't heard from her in months. They start asking Christy questions. And the boyfriend of Hectorina McLennan, Christy's latest victim, he gets suspicious as well. He comes to 10 Rillington Place looking for her. This is all making John Reginald Christie incredibly nervous. He then decides this is probably the last person I'm going to be able to get away with this with. And he wallpapers the three women in. And in March of 1953, he decides to get away for a while. He finds those illegal subletters and leaves 10 Rillington Place for good. I just can't even believe he's got bodies all over the place, and this is the decision that he makes. Again, smart man, but boy, does he make a big mistake. A few days later, the tenant from upstairs finds the first body. He calls the police. They tear down the wallpaper and find all three bodies in the alcove. Then they find Ethel's body beneath the floorboards. And Christy is nowhere to be found. Almost instantly, the story is all over England. His picture is printed everywhere, and the headlines were really (laughs) pretty alarming. Like, they called him the Notting Hill Killer, Jack the Strangler, and then they said, search for the moon-mad killer because there's a full moon that would trigger Christie is what people thought. Everyone is looking for him. His image and his description are making the rounds. It's a bad time to be bald in London. If you've got a bald head uh, and you're a middle-aged man, you're being brought into police station so you can prove that you're not Christie. Meanwhile, the real Christie hasn't gone far. He's still in London, and he's not doing a great job of hiding. His luck officially runs out on March 31st, after a little over a week on the run. A police officer sees him on a bridge and approaches him. He says, well, who are you? And Christy gives a false name and a false identity, but the policeman asks him to remove his hat, and he removes his hat, and he says, you're Christy, aren't you? Christy is arrested and taken into the police station, where he admits to murdering the four women found in his home. And in an odd twist, Len Trevelyan, that police officer who smelled the funny smell at 10 Rillington Place, is guarding Christie's cell. And Christie says, do you recognize me? And Trevelyan says, of course I do. And Christie smiles and says, I guess you know what that smell was at this point. You were standing right above my wife. The public is shocked by the body count. And the press is starting to ask, hey, what about that case of Timothy Evans? Didn't he live there too? Could there really have been two killers living under the same roof? And then, just a few weeks after Christie is arrested, 
he makes a dramatic statement. He says, I murdered Beryl Evans. Oddly, though, he does not admit to killing Geraldine. Some people believe him right away. After all, it is another body at 10 Rillington Place. But others are skeptical. Christie is going for an insanity plea. And so, in a way, this latest confession could work in his favor. Christie even says to the jail chaplain, The more, the madder. The police eventually find the two additional bodies in the garden, Ruth Fewerst and Muriel Eady. Christie admits to those murders, and he confesses to several other murders that the officers can't prove ever happened. But there's no doubt he's guilty of killing at least six women. Ruth Fewerst, Muriel Eady, Ethel Christie, Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. Which, of course, fuels the suspicions that are already swirling. Couldn't he be telling the truth about murdering Beryl? Was Timothy Evans an innocent man? Did Christie lie at the trial so that Evans would be executed in his place? Now, the problem with this case is Evans was a liar, Christie was a liar, they lied about each other, they lied about everything, and it's very, very difficult, was difficult and is difficult now, to actually establish what really happened. That's Sir Julian Knowles. He has studied the Evans case in his work as a legal scholar. He told us Christie is found guilty at trial. And afterwards, as he awaits execution, the public demands that the government take another look at the Evans case. So they do. They hire an independent reviewer who conducts a speedy assessment in the summer of 1953. That review concludes... Evans was indeed guilty. Christie's confessions to murdering Beryl were false. And therefore there was no miscarriage of justice. So the ruling in the Evans case stands. John Christie, a convicted murderer, is hanged just like Timothy Evans before him. But the case doesn't leave the public eye. And before long, it becomes part of another public discussion that's happening around this time. Whether or not the UK should abolish the death penalty. It's not the first time this debate has come up. But for a variety of reasons, in the mid-1950s and early 1960s, it's gaining a lot of traction. And for those against capital punishment, the case of Timothy Evans becomes a rallying cry. They say, look, an innocent man might have been hanged. The Evans case was very heavily debated as an example of a miscarriage of justice. Public opinion never went away, that Timothy Evans had been wrongly executed and people were just not prepared to puss up with it unless some proper answer was found to what had actually happened. So in 1965, as the death penalty discussion is continuing, the government launches a second inquiry into the case. This one finds... No jury would ever have convicted Evans had they known of what Christie had done, let alone what he was about to do. Christie wouldn't have looked like such a star witness. But the report's final conclusion is perplexing. It states... That Evans probably had killed Beryl, but probably had not killed Geraldine. The bodies were found together, both strangled. So it was typically thought... Whoever killed Beryl killed Geraldine. And that had always been accepted by everybody. 
So this second report raises more questions, but it certainly doesn't absolve Evans completely. Meanwhile, the argument against the death penalty in the UK does prevail. In 1965, capital punishment for murder is suspended. And in 1969, it's permanently abolished. Many people think that the furor over the Evans case, along with a handful of other controversial cases, ultimately had an impact on that decision. So the Evans case is remembered in large part because it has a hand in changing the criminal justice system in the UK. But also because it's a mystery that can't be quite fully resolved. Because when Timothy Evans was accused of murder, the death penalty was used in the UK. And he was hanged. Whatever secrets he had, he took them to the grave. Decades after the deaths of Beryl and Geraldine, in 2003, a family member of Timothy Evans goes to the High Court of England and Wales to ask to have Evans's case reassessed again. The request is ultimately denied. It happened so long ago. But the court does make an unofficial public statement, saying, We ourselves are happy to say that Timothy Evans was wrongly convicted, was wrongly executed. So by an indirect route, the court formally declared Evans innocent, albeit not in a criminal appeal, which would actually quash the conviction. Sir Knowles agrees with the 2003 assessment of the case. He believes that the evidence points to Evans's innocence. On the other hand, Jonathan Oates thinks the evidence points to Evans's guilt. I think it's partly due to Evans's character being violent and drunken and abusive, but also the information that we know how Christie killed people. He says the MO in the barrel case was different. There was no gas involved, for one thing. And according to Oates's review of the archival materials, the original police investigation didn't find any evidence of rape. In a way, your judgment of who's guilty might come down to how you feel about the nature of coincidence. As Sir Knowles put it, I just come back to the fundamental point that I think convinces most people the chances of two men, unknown to each other, killing women in exactly the same way, in the same small house in West London, is just vanishingly small. But to Professor Dawson's mind, two serial killers living in the same house at the same time seems outlandish. One serial killer and an abusive husband who has abused his wife before who is capable of snapping in post-war, depressed, terrible London. Oh yeah, I totally believe that. It's a weird coincidence, sure. But she thinks it's possible that there really did happen to be two killers living in the same tiny house at 10 Rillington Place. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We are reading and listening, and we really love to hear from you. So please reach out. Thank you to our guests, Professor Kate Winkler Dawson, author of the book Death in the Air and the forthcoming book All That Is Wicked. Thanks also to Jonathan Oates, author of the book John Christie of Rillington Place, biography of a serial killer. And to Sir Julian Knowles, author of The Abolition of the Death Penalty in the United Kingdom, 
how it happened, and why it still matters. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder, sound designed by Dan Rosado, and story edited by Mary Nauf. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn and Jesse Katz. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.